um, recovered um, the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God, of a congregation coming together and learning together um, what God's Word teaches. And so we're coming to the first half of 1 Corinthians 7 as we work our way through Paul's first epistle, his first letter um, to the church at Corinth. Um, a few words of introduction before um, we jump into this specific passage. Um, this is a passage, and really the second half of this book, Paul's responding to a written letter that he received about things that were going on there in Corinth. Um, and so you have to remember, this is Paul's not giving a manual or a systematic theology on these topics. He's writing to a very real congregation that was dealing with very real problems, and specifically what we were looking at last week and even in some of the previous passages, this congregation did not have a firm footing in what God teaches about human sexuality, about how to pursue biblical sexual purity, what that looks like in marriage, what that looks like in singleness, what is sexual sin, and how to hate sexual sin and avoid sexual sin. Um, and these things were running rampant in the church in Corinth. And so Paul is writing to say, no, no, God really cares about these things. And he has spoken definitively. And so he's, he's relying on biblical principles and truths and speaking to very real circumstances that are going on in Corinth. And so as we come to this passage, we're listening for biblical truths. We're watching how Paul applied them in Corinth so we see how to apply them um, in our lives. And that's how the scripture works. It's applicable to every generation, um, and it is God's word and truth in every generation um, as it is. And so this particular passage will run through things like um, divorce and sexuality within marriage and what singleness and celibacy and singleness looks like, um, widows and the unmarried. And obviously those are a lot of sensitive topics um, that a ton of books have been written on. And I'm not going to be able to cover all of that, um, but 1 Corinthians 7 just happens to be one of those passages that people go to around any of those topics. So I both encourage you um, that is deeper and more specific than I'm going to be able to get into this morning to study God's Word, to get out of concordance, um, to talk to a more mature Christian about books that they'd recommend that are godly um, teaching um, on, these, on these specific topics. And most specifically, um, to remind you that as Paul talks about marriage as he talks about divorce, as he talks about unmarried widows, singleness, he's specifically talking about avoiding sexual sin and pursuing sexual purity. Um, and that's important because we see, for example, when he's talking to, to married couples and he's showing how marriage is a guard against sexual sin, that's not the only reason that marriage exists. In fact, it's probably not one of the primary reasons that marriage exists but it's the context in which Paul is speaking in this particular passage. So, like I said, I'm not going to be able to give a full theology on marriage, a full theology on singleness, a full theology of human sexuality, um, but we come to God's word in this particular context and say, Lord, teach us from your word. We're going to listen in to what you were saying um, in, in Corinth um, so that we might see sin, we might repent of sin, see God's grace to us, and see his pattern for both singleness and for marriage in the Christian life. So um, with that brief introduction, um, let me pray, and then we'll consider God's word. Father, thank you for your word, which you're about to read, which is true and full in every part. We pray, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would not just teach us the truth, um, but that you would continue to change us so that we live on the statement, thus saith the Lord. 
um, that we want to understand, that we want to reason, that we want to see the logic, but that we mostly obey, we primarily obey, because you have said it is true, and that you are a king, and you command us through your word. And so, Lord, we come as your servants. We don't come above your word. We come to listen to our king say, this is the, these are the priorities. These are the laws of the kingdom. Lord, use your word to that end. We pray in Christ. Amen. So as we come here to the first 16 verses of chapter 7 of Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth, we start with chapter, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he's quoting something he heard them say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, um, a celibate um, man. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the unmarried, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And so what we'll do is we'll jump in um, to this passage. We're going to go through the different groups of people that Paul's talking to. And that, that's what he's doing. You probably noticed he's talking to married folks. And then he's talking to unmarried and widowed folks. And then he's talking to Christians, to Christian spouses about the topic of divorce. And then he's talking to a Christian spouse who's, unmarried to, who's married to a non-Christian spouse um, about divorce. And so we'll go through those and then we'll have some summary implications um, based on what's going on in Corinth. How then does our congregation think about marriage and singleness and human sexuality and divorce and sexual purity and sexual sin? Um, the, the big things to kind of hold on to of, of Paul's desire in this and why he's having this congregation, this conversation, is that God cares about sexual purity. It is something that is very near to God's heart. It is a priority in God's kingdom and for all of God's people that they know what God says about sexual purity and that they pursue sexual purity because it is God's best for every human being in whatever situation of life they find themselves. And so because God cares about sexual purity and sexual sin was rampant in the congregation at Corinth, 
Paul's now bringing correction in specific situations for the end goal that married folks, unmarried folks, widowed folks, uh, if you're married to a Christian, if you're married to a non-Christian, that God's design for sexual purity and holiness and happiness could be pursued by anyone, no matter where they are, in whatever circumstance. So that's main principle. Second main principle is that God encourages people to remain as they are. That when the gospel comes into your life, if you're married, you're single, or you're a widow, the gospel is applicable to every person. So the gospel does not necessitate a change. In fact, in places, gospel says, no, no, you, you can't change your, your circumstances. So you will see um, when he's talking to married folks, he's like, no, just because you're converted doesn't mean now that you can get a divorce. Again, what we looked at last week, that's dumb. Um, you can't do that. And so we see these two big principles in Paul responding to things that the Corinthian congregation is tempted to believe, false truths, false slogans, false mottos, and he's counteracting those. We talked about those last week, that typically when we prepare the way to make it easier for us to sin, we twist God's truth before we deny God's truth. And so last week we talked about people might say, well, I mean, I know God says don't commit sexual immorality, but I mean, this is kind of a different circumstance. God doesn't understand like my particular circumstances. And I mean, scripture says that God is love. And I think in this situation, the most loving thing to do would be this because God loves me. And if God loves me, why would he call me to something hard? So I think in this circumstance, sin is okay. And no, you may not write out like a, a list of therefores on a piece of paper, but that's what our minds do as Christians before we sin. Um, even as folks who think they're Christians, but aren't Christians to justify sin. We come up with these slogans and mottos and this false reasoning. And so Paul's coming in and saying, no, no, no. The truth of God speaks to that. And we're gonna stand on the truth of God and ask what has God said? And that we're gonna help one another in that so that we guard ourselves against these silly, stupid, false slogans, false mottos um, that we use to justify sin in our own lives um, or in the lives of others. And you see that here in, in the beginning of the text in verse 1. He's received from the church at Corinth, um, and he's quoting, um, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they, they have this. Paul was a celibate man. Jesus was celibate. They were single. Um, they had given their lives to God and decided purposely not to be married in order to give their full lives in service um, to God. And so a, someone who is celibate um, is saying, I am, I am not having sexual relations with someone of the opposite sex um, in my pursuit of holiness and service in God's kingdom. And so apparently what was happening in Corinth um, is that married people started to say that too. And so married people who are married to one another, even though, you know, married, love each other, they're thinking, well, you know, maybe they think that intimacy between a husband and a wife is something that is, is not good, or maybe is sinful, or maybe is dirty within a husband and wife. And so think, well, to pursue holiness in our marriage, um, we, or maybe one spouse decides, I am going to abstain from physical intimacy within our marriage in order to pursue holiness. And so Paul's responding to that. There's this motto, well, obviously celibacy is holy. Celibacy can't be holy. And so they're saying, well, if celibacy is holy and I'm a Christian, 
in maybe sex as you know, difficulties in sex or sin or guilt or something else, saying, well, I'm going to decide within marriage um, to abstain from that altogether. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't do that. That, that principle that celibacy can be holy is true, but if you're married, what it looks like for you to be sexually pure is to have healthy, God-honoring, physical, physical intimacy regularly with your spouse. That is what sexual purity looks like, and only with your spouse. That is what a sexual purity looks like um, for a married couple. And Paul warns and says, if you just decide to try and take what holiness looks like in celibacy and apply it within the context of marriage, you are denying several principles and you're also setting yourself up for temptation. And so Paul says, one of the reasons that God has given marriage, one of the reasons that God has given marriage is so that Christians can avoid sexual temptation and sexual sin because God has given Christians sexual desire. And so Paul says, if you're a married couple, if God has called you not to singleness, but God has called you to marriage, a part of which he's not given you the gift for long-term celibacy, and you decide instead in marriage that you're going to forego physical intimacy, then you are setting yourself up and you're setting your spouse up for the temptation to sexual sin. And Paul's saying, don't do that. That's going to end up bad for you and for your spouse. And so that's the negative. And then he also gives a positive. And he said, because understand, within the covenant marriage between a man and a woman before God, that covenant of love means that you have mutual authority over one another. You are one flesh. She says, husband, your body is your wife's. Wife, your body is your husband's. And so within that context, you have a chance to serve one another in the context of physical intimacy and in every other way because marriage has bound you together in a bond that is indissolvable, indissolvable that God has set up. And so he's saying, give yourself to the mutual ownership and accountability and authority of one another because that's what marriage is. So physical intimacy within marriage not only guards against sexual temptation, but it also illustrates the gospel because marriage between a husband and a woman is an illustration of Jesus's love for the church and the church's love for Jesus. As we talked about last week, God's gift of physical intimacy within the context of marriage is spiritual superglue. It bonds and strengthens on marriages. And so the Apostle Paul here is encouraging Christians to that end not to abstain. So if they're saying, well, holiness in Christian marriage looks like abstaining from physical intimacy, Paul's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not true. That denies some truths about marriage and also takes away a guard against sexual immorality that God has set, place, set in place for a reason. Now, it's, it's, this is a passage that has, that, that's the truth of God's word and what it says. Um, a lot of times people come to this passage and they twist it to say things that it doesn't say and that Paul isn't saying. So before um, I move on, I want to say some things that this, this passage doesn't teach. This teach does not justify the objectifying of one spouse over another. 
Um, a lot of times what this means is that typically the husband will look at the wife and say, she is an object to meet my sexual desire. And even saying it that way shows the dehumanizing and objectifying um, that happens within marriages um, when one spouse sins against the other. No, it says mutual ownership. That they're not coming and saying, well, you are an object. No, I'm, I'm an object. My, my body is given by God to serve another one, not my body's given with desires to say you are obligated or you are an object. And so you see in this passage, he talks to husbands and wives in both ways, and both talking about conjugal rights and also mutual ownership. Your body is the other person's to love and serve, not to objectify. The second thing that this teaches is that we don't get to cultivate a demanding attitude around physical, physical intimacy in marriage. You know, neither spouse gets to say, well, this is my right, so this is gonna be the way that it is. You even hear in that, the kind of selfishness um, that comes out when someone takes the word of God that is very specifically saying, it's your chance to give yourself for someone else, not to demand something from someone else. And so you can't use this passage as some kind of demanding, well, this is the way that it's going to be because scripture says this, that, that does not illustrate the relationship between Jesus and the church, nor does it in- illustrate any kind of loving, self-sacrificial, compassionate, empathetic love towards one another that should be marked between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. Third, physical intimacy is not different from or divorced from the other aspects of intimacy in a Christian marriage, emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, relational intimacy. And so it's not just that Christians should be pursuing physical intimacy. He's talking here about a specific issue of sexual immorality, but in general, Christian couples should be pursuing intimacy in every area of their lives, and regular, holy, God-honoring physical intimacy is going to be a part of that. And so it's not something like, well, you know, if, if physical intimacy is happening in a certain regularity, obviously everything else in the marriage is right. Or if everything else in the marriage is wrong, that this is something that we have to do as well. Marriages together, as a couple together, grows together, forgives one another, learns together, are sanctified together, are growing totally in their whole relationship, intimacy in every area of their relationship, of which the physical aspect is one part. Um, Lastly, um, this does not teach that physical intimacy in marriage is the only way to guard against sexual sin. A lot of times you'll see especially young guys um, who have not repented of sexual sin or who were in sexual sin, instead of fighting against sexual sin by killing sin and repenting of sin and going to God and looking to God, Um, as their wholeness and as their treasure and as their chief good, they look to their spouse and say, well, I'm dealing with sexual sin and it's your fault. No, that's, that's not what scripture teaches. This is physical intimacy between husband and wife is one guard against sexual sin, as you see in this passage, but it starts when each spouse takes ownership and accountability for their own sexuality and their growth and holiness as being created in the image of God, and they pursue sexual holiness in their marriage, 
as a whole, resisting temptation, resisting pornography, resisting you know, the messages on Facebook, maybe from an old classmate, all the different ways that there are threats to your marriage, resisting all of those are the ways that we fight sin and finding our sufficiency in Christ Jesus and loving our spouses out of that. And so physical intimacy in marriage is not the only guard against sexual, sexual immorality. Um, and if right now, if you're a, a man or a woman in marriage and you haven't cultivated a habit of holiness or you're in sexual sin, you have to fight that with repentance and satisfaction in Christ and looking to him rather than just looking for your, to your spouse to fix it. And so we could go on a lot more um, about this passage, but this is one of those passages that have been used really bad ways that, re- that reap some really bad consequences in Christian marriages. So again, that's not what the whole sermon is. Um, maybe some other time I'll do a deep dive into 1 Corinthians 7 and we'll stop verse by verse and go through a series on it. Um, but what I want you to see is that if you are married, God has defined what sexual purity and holiness looks like for you. It's regular physical intimacy that's a part of a growing, healthy marriage that's growing in intimacy. So neither sexual sin nor abstinence are options for you if you're married. God's been very specific, you know, about that is, about what that looks like. He moves on to talk about after that in verses 6 through 9, um, celibacy instead of marriage. And so now he's talking to people who are not yet married or who have been widowed. And in their situation, they're asking the question, well, well, now I have an option. I'm a Christian. I'm single. And by the way, I, I, I didn't like doing this when I was preparing this sermon. Um, so I say single Christian celibacy or celibate Christian singleness. Um, I use those three words together. Um, I shouldn't have to. Um, you know, it, it, it should be, you know, that, as we said, if you're celibate, you're single. And if you're single, you're celibate. And if you're Christian and single, you're celibate. Um, But in these days, so many false things are being taught, I have to pull all those together. And so it should be that if we say Christian singleness, obviously you're celibate because God doesn't add any other things. So in, in saying those words together, I'm not saying, well, within singleness, there's this really specific calling called celibacy. No, no. If you're not married, you are celibate. That, that is what God has said you know, very, very clearly um, in his word and what you see taught here. So as I'm using those words together, I'm not hedging um, and I'm not like modifying as if they use different versions. It's just so many goofy stuff is taught. Um, I have to, unfortunately, use all of those words um, together. And so Paul, to those who are unmarried or widow, commends lifelong Christian singleness. And he commends Christian singleness in general. And so within Christian singleness, you may be single as a Christian and not want to be. You may be Christian as a single and you're pretty convinced that God has made you and give you the gifting for marriage and you're not married yet. You are still celibate and you are taking all of your sexuality and you are saving it for your future spouse. Or you may be called like Paul was, like Jesus was, to lifelong Christian singleness. And you found that God has given you a gift that allows you to resist sexual temptation um, apart from being married. And so you've decided to give your singleness to God. And we'll talk about that in a later sermon where Paul mentions that. And so one is 
Christian celibate singleness in preparation for marriage, another that God has called you to lifelong singleness um, for the service of God in, um, in, in his kingdom. And Paul was the latter. Um, he could be married, and he decided not to be in order to serve and honor God in his singleness. And so he's talking, and he's saying, that is a holy calling. Marriage is normative. Marriage, we could say, is kind of the default in general. That's why it's normative. But the choice to pursue singleness, if God has gifted you that way, is also a holy option. And Paul is kind of commending that here. And you'll see him towards the end commend that as well. He says, hey, it's, this is a good option. This is something that, is, that, that you should consider if you're single or you're unmarried, that God might be calling you to lifelong Christian celibate um, singleness. And so that's, that's what he says to these folks in, in 6 through 9. Um, and this is, the, this is his remain as you're called. And so, hey, I became a Christian. I'm not married yet. What should I do? Well, you should consider whether God's calling you to lifelong singleness or consider whether God's wired you to care for um, a spouse and lifelong marriage um, and, and work that out within the context of a local, a local, um, a local congregation. But if you're single, you're celibate. If you're married, you're not. So it's, I, I know that these are, you know, kind of, we would say, private things. But as one author said, within a Christian church, who is physically intimate with whom is public knowledge. Like that, that's not a secret in any congregation. Because married folks aren't celibate. Single folks are. And those are the options as we all try to love God and love others in the place that God has called us to because God loves us and he's called us to holiness in this area of life. And so that's the the second group of people he talks to. The third group of people he comes to is should a Christian divorce a Christian? And what I want you to notice here is that Paul magnifies right now the authority of what he's saying because God so much hates divorce. And so before this, Paul is talking with the authority of apostle and the full authority of the word of God. So it's not like before this, Paul's like, here's some random things that maybe you can consider. He's preaching and teaching God's word, but he gets to the, the, the topic of divorce. And he says, now listen, Jesus was very, very explicit when it came to marriage and divorce. And Jesus changed with the coming of the gospel how God's people relate to the topic of divorce. God created man and woman to be together in a lifelong covenant marriage. Throughout the Old Testament, as sin propagated and the people of God ran away from God, God allowed an allowance of divorce because of the hard-heartedness, as Jesus teaches, um, of the people in the Old Testament. Jesus comes and he changes things in the renewal and the redemption of the gospel. And so Christians now relate to divorce differently. And why it was probably an issue here in Corinth is because the people in Corinth were reasoning the way a lot of Christians today reason in order to justify divorce. They, we should just say, every marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. You don't have one sinner and another sinner and bring them together and get less sin. That just, that, that math doesn't work. Um, you don't take one, one, one sinner, another sinner, bring them together and say, pursue intimacy. As we've already seen, God said, pursue intimacy in every area of your life. Get closer and not run into difficult areas and sin against each other and have to forgive each other and just have hard things of living in a fallen world. 
it gets hard. Which is why God has given the grace of the gospel in Christian marriage to remind us God is with you and he's called you to this hard thing. But what we reason when we're in the midst of the difficulties of marriage is, like I said before, my context is different. I, I think maybe, you know, hypothetically speaking, maybe I could be more fruitful in God's kingdom or I could grow better spiritually if I wasn't married to this horrible, awful person. And so, you know, I, I know that God kind of doesn't like divorce, but I, I, I think in my situation, if I wasn't married, I could be more holy, and I think I could be more fruitful in God's kingdom because of this, you know, lump on a log that I'm married to, or this person is really inhibiting what God has for me and my fruitfulness in God's kingdom and my holiness. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I think if you heard someone say that, you would say, no. But I've, I've sat across the table where it is, it is woefully hard, where I've heard someone say things like that because they found an awesome other person. And an awesome other person, they just love Jesus so much more than the person that I'm married to. And the person I'm married to is just, they're just not very nice. And so how would God not want me to cast aside the not nice person and then get into a marriage with a holy person who really wants me to grow and I think I could grow here. And so you see how that kind of sinful reasoning on the basis of how can I be most holy, how can I be most fruitful as a Christian could lead Christians to entertain the idea of or enter into divorce. And Paul is very simply saying, no, don't do that. Divorce is off limits for you because of what Jesus said. Our, Jesus spoke really specifically to this. You are bound to one another. You love one another. You serve one another. Yes, it's going to be hard. Your holiness and your happiness is wrapped up and your self-giving service to someone else, not in finding someone to fulfill all of your desires. God has called you to be a servant within marriage. But it's, again, it's, even in that logic and reasoning, as Christians, we have to fall back on what we teach our children. We obey, not because we necessarily always understand, but because God has said so. As we talk to our children, like, I'll explain to you why, you know, the rules of my family go, but the reason you obey is not that I've given a good explanation and you understand and like it. The reason you obey is because this is what I've said as a parent in this household God does the same thing. It's like, yeah, I, I want to show you the beauty of covenant marriage. I want to show you the destruction of divorce and why you would want to avoid that. But I want you to obey because I've said so, and I'm your king. And so I'll just read to you these passages together so that you hear them. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, there, he, Paul realizes a divorce may happen anyway, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And one of the passages he quotes is from Mark 10, and so this is where the, the disciples heard Jesus say this, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
And so Paul's command to honor marriage and avoid divorce, again, is related to sexual purity and avoiding sexual immorality, saying, stay married, because if not, all of a sudden adultery is propagated everywhere. And so if Christians found themselves, you know, now Christians, maybe they were Christians and then they married one another. Maybe they were not Christians in Corinth, and together they came as a married couple, and then they were, they, they, as a married couple, they met Christ together, both were converted. They're saying, well, we weren't Christians when we were married, now we're Christians and we're married. Paul, what should we do? Should we, we've decided now that we're Christians, we're going to get divorced and we're going to be single. And Paul says, no, if you're married, stay married. Don't get a divorce. And that's how you honor God. Now, you can kind of hear the reasoning because this is what we do. But, 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 but what, what if? And so you can hear the Corinthian congregation now saying, well, what if, Paul, I, I have an example now. What if one spouse is a Christian and the other one's not a Christian? Now? Now can we get a divorce? No, because obviously you know, a, a Christian married to a non-Christian, not only are they going to be coming from different standpoints of how they, they run their family and the decisions they make, but you have now someone who is you know, very real in biblical terms serving Satan and another one who's serving God, and they're in a covenant relationship with one another. You know, Paul, certainly this is a scenario in which we should pursue a divorce, and Paul still says, no, don't do that. If you're married to someone who's not yet a Christian, and they are willing to live with you, stay married with them. Be married, and you don't, he says, you don't know. God saves who he wants. And so it's, and he has this conversation about holy, and the husband's holy, and the children are holy. What he's saying is that when there's a Christian and a non-Christian in a marriage, God's rule and reign wins. So it's going to be really hard for the person who's a Christian being married to not a Christian, but God is present within that marriage and present with those children and so you should not remove yourself from that marriage through divorce or separation. Um, and you, who knows? God may convert your spouse. And so again, Paul's working his way through um, these, different char- these different categories um, to talk about marriage. If you're married, remain married. If you're single, consider remaining single. You can get married if you want to, but consider remaining single. Um, but in all of these things, we are after sexual purity. And sexual purity looks different based on whether you're married or whether you're not married. Do you you see the beauty of this? Do you see, even in listening to God's word, how this helps cut through a lot of the nonsense that we see online in our world? Our world's like, well, there are like 35 different options of sexual expression. No, they're not. God's really simple in, in how this looks. And one of the beauties of Christianity is it doesn't make things more complex, it makes things more simple. If you're married, this is what it looks like. This is what sexual purity looks like. If you're not married, this is what sexual purity looks like. So what are some implications in closing? Um, first, God wants us to pursue sexual purity and avoid sexual temptation. It's something that we're about as a congregation because our God is about. And one of the things that our world says is, no, 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 that's a private thing. You keep to yourself. You don't tell anybody else. No, no, no. This is, this is who our God is. Um, this is something that he speaks about and that we speak about, and we want to encourage one another towards sexual purity and avoiding sexual sin. Um, those are big things for our congregation because they're big things in God's word. Secondly, as we said, God is very specific about human sexuality. So if we would say all of the law, all of God's law is summarized in loving God and loving others, then this is how we would summarize the three options. Purpose to love God and others 
as single and therefore celibate in advance of marriage. So if, if you're single right now and you are pretty sure that God has not called you to a life of celibacy and singleness, if you're a young person, it means to save and restrain your sexual, um, your sexual expression, your romance, all of those things for the person that God has um, elected to be your spouse. It doesn't go from general to specific. For everyone that God has chosen to be married, God has reserved their sexuality for that single person. So if you know that God's leading you towards marriage and you're not yet married, it means saving sexual desire for that person who you're one day going to marry and resisting sexual sin for the benefit of that future marriage. Second option, purpose to love God and others, single and therefore celibate as a lifelong calling. Some people within Christianity will take the example of Paul and Jesus and be a lifelong single. That is, love God and love others that way. Third, purpose to love God and others through joyful and regular romance and physical intimacy and lifelong marriage between you and your spouse. Those are the three options um, that God gives um, to people um, within Scripture. And within those options are health and holiness and happiness and goodness for us because God wants us to be good. Remember, we talked about last week, sexual sin is like a log in the fireplace. It's great what's in the fireplace. If you put it on the carpet, not good. Um, so the, the beauty and wonder of physical intimacy, when it's where it goes, is awesome. When it's where it's not, it does not lose any power. That power is just leveraged towards destruction rather than giving life. Third, we stand with God against all sexual sin. And everything outside of those three options is sexual sin. You know, flirting with folks, not your spouse, pornography, you know, I, whether it's man or a woman, like across the board, allowing your eyes to lustfully fall on someone who is not your spouse. All of those things are sexual sin. And we are against all of them because we stand with our God and we love one another and we believe God and what he says is best for us. We stand with God supporting marriages and standing against divorce what we affirm. Um, if you're in this church, we want your marriage to grow and thrive. And we are going to be steadfastly for your marriage. And we're going to push you towards one another when things are hard. And we're going to help you figure stuff out if there's conflict that you're having trouble solving because we are for you and we are for your marriage and we're for your children's future marriage if God calls them to marriage as well. Lastly, and we need to end here, we believe in the grace of Jesus Christ that forgives us of all of our sexual sin. Um, sexual sin is one of the areas we're tempted to believe that God cannot forgive or that God's power cannot fight. Because it's such a powerful thing and wreaks so much havoc outside of the design that God's given, we're tempted to think, well, God can't forgive that sexual sin or God can't bring renewal and recovery and teach me to walk in the ways of sexual purity uh, because of what I've done. And the beauty of the gospel is that no sin can beat it. And the beauty of Jesus Christ is that he is so awesome and so great that when he grows us in him, our love for other things naturally fade. And so the grace of Jesus is for you. There's never been a sexually perfect person except for Jesus Christ. And so all of us come with maybe a little bit, maybe with a lot of sexual sin. And we can go to God for grace and forgiveness and repentance and true forsaking. Through the grace of God, you can really forsake pornography. Through the grace of God, you really 
can forsake sinful desires. That is the power of God's grace and the beauty of what he's done. And so I didn't want you to end thinking, well, there's no hope for me. Based on what I've done, no, there's no hope. No, no. God's grace, there is always hope. But outside of God's grace, there isn't. And so if, if there's ever sin, we can't beat sin through anything else but the grace of Jesus. Now, be steadfast, be accountable, have filters on your computers, have accountability wherever you are. But in the end, what changes your heart are not the filters on your computer, which you should have, but in the grace of God changing your motivations and desires and teaching you and encouraging you to walk in the beauty and wonder of biblical sexual purity. And so this, this is the word of our God. It's, it's beautiful um, in every part. I'm sure you probably have a lot of questions that maybe I didn't get to. Um, but I wanted you to see the overall um, desire and wonder and beauty of the grace of God and God's plan for human sexuality, which is very, very clear um, in his word. So that as you're out in the world and you're bombarded by all the different views and the this and the that and the abbreviations and the what about, you can go back, no, no, my God's spoken specifically about these things. And my God's not confusing. My God is simple. His designs are beautiful and are wonderful. And I've purposed to walk in his ways because he has saved me for that reason and for that purpose. Why don't I pray for us to that end? Father, thank you for your grace in our lives.